what does Kyrie's doll say? It's a little campy. Um, take care. Best Signing regards. off from Portland State University, but not really because no one is allowed there. Welcome to Radio Free PDX with your hosts, Nick Gatlin and Nick Townsend. Hi. Hello. Hello. This episode, we're going to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and food insecurity during said pandemic. Uh, yeah, sound a little less cheery if you can. Um, so, this is um, not a great subject. No. Um, so... As of recording this, um, the Cape uh, Brown's new two-week freeze, it's longer than that for some counties, went into effect uh, yesterday, November 18th. Yes, and for Multnomah County, it will last at least four weeks. And during that uh, lockdown slash pause, uh, face masks and uh, other face coverings will be required in public venues, indoors, uh, wherever people can't. Yeah, um, basically, a lot of this is a little redundant, but some of it is changing. Um, bars and restaurants uh, will no longer have in-person dining. It'll all be takeout only. Even outside, um, which uh, which is an issue for restaurants, obviously. Uh, yeah, so anywhere where people can, uh, quote, mingle um, and essentially not maintain distance, which is everywhere, basically, um, mm-hmm. you can't eat outdoors or indoors you have to take uh, takeout to go um and indoor visits at long-term care facilities will be also banned with some exceptions uh workplaces will require work from home where possible so it's a lot of a lot of changes um if you it's also not really changes though um the vi- it feels very march it just feels like we're in march again Right. The, the, what I was going to say is like it, it's a lot of changes if you were going out to restaurants and going to gyms and bars and everything and, mm-hmm. and you know, doing everything right up to the line. If you've been at home or social distancing and isolating most of the time, it's probably not much of a change. Yeah, I mean, I sat on a couple patios. I'm not ashamed to admit that, um, but that's really the only concrete impact this is going to have on my personal life. Yeah, honestly, I like, I'm looking at the uh, list of restrictions here. I haven't been to a museum or a zoo or an indoor recreation facility since. I'm not sure I knew that was an option. Yeah. I apparently the uh, Portland art museum is open. I'm not sure if it will be after this. I'm assuming not. not. Omni was open for a brief minute um, in October. Yeah, but I mean, I, I would assume that that most people who uh, have been, you know, paying attention to their health or others probably are not doing much of this anyway. I don't think that's much of a controversial statement. Yeah, um, I mean, we can talk more about um, the public messaging uh, around this and um, to what degree it is controversial. What I'll say is that, like, I feel like orders like this go a long way towards um making people take it seriously 
And I, I'm hoping the public yeah. accepts that. Well, and I also think that when it, it is a, uh, you know, statewide measure like this, then it does kind of take the, the, um, action off of individuals and make it more of a collective duty. Yeah. I because um, I mean, um, I mean, we could talk all day about responsibility, but like if, if the museum's open, it's not insane to think I'm going to go to the museum if you're not checking the New York times every 13 minutes, like we are. Yeah, we are um, a little obsessive about uh, media, but I do think that the the messaging in the past few months about you know everyone needs to wear a mask and, and everyone needs to stay inside. Like I understand it and it is true, um, but I, I think uh, a little bit of the messaging has been too focused on individual action and not enough on like what actual governments are going to do to prevent the spread. Um, and I, yeah, you know, I do welcome the, things like this. Yeah, and this isn't um, exclusively an Oregon thing either. I know that New Mexico instituted a very similar order. Um, other states are starting to crack down and institute um, mask mandates and more stringent lockdowns. Just today, um, California instituted a curfew because the coronavirus cannot spread at night. Um, so that's that's happening. Um, something that is unique to Oregon that I think we wanted to talk about was um, takeout cocktails are not allowed in Oregon. Yes, um, which I believe they are in Washington. They are in Washington, yes. You can go 20 minutes away in Vancouver and basically every single bar will give you a, a to-go cocktail. And um, this, uh, you know, if you're in college, um, like most of our audience is, um, this can seem sort of inconsequential if you're not at the drinking age, but um, cocktails are uh, pretty much the biggest money maker for most um, places that sell alcohol. They have the highest markup. Um, you know, they can go for 10 to $12 and you can sell a lot if they're in person. And um, the inability to sell cocktails um, is a really big um, financial stress on a lot of bars, um, especially cocktail bars, because like, what else do they do? Peanuts? Yeah, exactly. And I think that is a good segue into our uh, next subtopic and really into the main topic of this episode, which is uh, food insecurity and uh, restaurants and restaurant workers and everything really relating to food in Oregon under this new uh, pause or freeze or lockdown. I'm not really sure what to call it. Um, I think they're a little hesitant to call it a full-on lockdown because it kind of isn't, but yeah. The messaging is a little inconsistent. Anyway, um, restaurants are uh, one of going to be one of the hardest hit industries um, from this freeze. Uh, I know that uh, some restaurants and restaurant uh, owners and and restaurant alliances have uh, already shown some opposition to this. Um, whether you know opposing the entire lockdown or supporting it, but uh, opposing, you know, some of the effects on their business and wanting more aid. Um, so I know that you, you've been doing some research into this. So uh, what do you know about how restaurants are coping? I think um, a really important dimension to this is the degree to which restaurants were hedging their bets on outdoor dining um, and the degree to which a lot of restaurants um, were winterizing their patios or um, creating new ways 
to do in-person business that were um, more socially distanced or um, more outdoors, even as it gets colder. And um, so like imagine you're a restaurant owner or um, a collective and you just spent $20,000 on a bunch of heat lamps and um, uh, winterizing your patio. And now you, you can't do that for four weeks um, and you're back to doing to go when maybe um, when maybe your real focus was on cocktails, which you could do on an outdoor patio, but now you can't. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, a lot of, of restaurants that have been preparing for maybe what we had taken as, as the status quo um, of, you know, outdoor dining, of preparing for that kind of stuff are maybe not as prepared for something like this. Um, I do want to point out uh, Katie Connors is the advisory board chair of the Independent Restaurants Alliance of Oregon. Um, and she said that they expect 80% of remaining restaurant and bar workers to be laid off in the um, next few weeks or so. Um, and that's especially important now because um, when this happened back in March, there were similar layoffs, but then um, there was the boosted unemployment insurance and there was um, the $1,200 check as meager as that seems in retrospect that did have a big, big impact on these workers. Now, um, you know, they're basically being sent out into the cold without any, um, without any means of, you know, making a paycheck. Exactly. And um, the Oregon Employment Department has had a lot of delays with unemployment uh, at both applications and with payout. Um, federal Paycheck Protection Program loans no longer exist. Um, you know, that expanded unemployment is has expired um, and some workers might have even, um, you know, expended their, their regular unemployment with the state. Um, so in general, like it's the same, uh, same kind of precipitating event as March, but the circumstances underneath are much, much worse right now. And there seems to be no state or federal aid to workers on the way. Yeah. I, um, I would be absolutely shocked if we saw anything before January and even then it's kind of a long shot at the federal level at the very least. Yeah. And by January also, it, it will probably be too late for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and we just, I think, need to prepare for the, um, you know, permanent ramifications that something like this is going to have. And I don't want to single out just the, the freeze because I think that is, you know, necessary in light of, of COVID just, in general, you know, the lack of preparation around COVID and, and yeah, I, um, yeah, the I, fact that we I, got to this point. I think it's a really interesting conversation to have um, the degree to which the freeze um, is sort of an inevitability because, um, I mean, say Kate Brown doesn't take any more measures right now. Um, we, we know what the case cases look like and we know what the trend lines look like. And um, I think if she didn't do it now, it just would have gone up even more and she would have been forced to do it in December or, you know, Joe Biden would have done it in January. So this is, um, this is an inevitability more than, um, more than anything else. Right. And it's more of just an inability to properly deal with the consequences of it. Yeah. Um, and you know, when we did have, uh, more robust federal intervention back in March and April and May, then, mm -hmm. you know, things weren't, as dire like they were still bad but um 
there there was somewhat of a safety net and now that safety net is pretty much gone and i mean um you know governors don't really have the um the resources that the federal government has to um you know to give every worker twelve hundred dollars or whatever um but there's an interesting conversation to be had about how um uh, states opening back up and letting restaurants and gyms open back up basically directly coincided with when unemployment benefits ended. Um, so that's just another dimen dimension to which this um, was a disaster on all fronts. Yeah, and I think the message here is that without real coordination and like economic relief on a massive scale, then we're kind of forcing these crises to happen that didn't need to. Um, and you know, if you don't pay people to stay home, then they're either going to starve or they're going to have to go out and work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, restaurant workers will have to go back to restaurants. And this was just a very slow moving, but. Well, and this isn't by, this is this isn't by any means a take that I came up with, but it's also, um, it's another way in which personal responsibility fails to be an adequate means of addressing this crisis because you can't ask someone to go work for eight hours a day around um, diners who are maskless and then tell them they can't come home and eat dinner with their with their extended family at Thanksgiving. Yeah, exactly. And I think the the focus on Thanksgiving, which I mean, of course, is important. Like it's going to suck. Yeah, people should not have indoor gatherings at Thanksgiving. Like that's. But you also probably shouldn't be going out to indoor gatherings at all, which is what people were doing up until yesterday. And that was basically government sh sanctioned. It was allowed. Yeah. And, and I know, um, you know, in the UK too, there have been criticisms of like, they had a uh, quote lockdown, but then they allowed restaurants to reopen. And now they're yeah. having a huge surge in cases too. Um, and it, it does feel well, like I mean, a failure you, of messaging. In New York City, you can now go to the gym, but not elementary school. So it's just like, it's all these weird um, half measure, me measures that um, demonstrate um, both like the unwillingness to, to do like a true and total lockdown like other countries have, but also um, the way like a, uh, the way a federal system um, with individual states making different rules leads to this sort of um, like bizarro scenario where like the rules don't really line up with the science in any meaningful way. Yeah. And we had, you know, months to prepare for this. Um, and the, pretty much the, the thing is the federal government chose not to. And then I prepared, I bought a 25 pound bag of beans. So same. I mean, I still have like, <laughs> I still have uh, my stash of beans from March. You still got that Orzo pasta yet. that you haven't figured out what to do with. Yeah, I mean, but I, I think that, um, you know, on the whole, individuals are really doing the right thing. I mean, there's a, you know, loud minority of anti-maskers and, and contrarians there, but like most people are doing the right thing. And as much as they can, given the truly like abysmal level of messaging, yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that um, at some point you have to have money. And if the government doesn't provide that, then what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. um, so speaking of money and um, economic need during the pandemic, uh, figure we should also talk about food insecurity, uh, not just among restaurant workers, but among everyone. Um, but I mean, 
especially restaurant workers. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, as a final as a final remark on that section, um, there was less than a week between um, this order being issued and going into effect. So, if you um, if you got brought back into work in your restaurant in July. Um, and you were expecting to ride that out for the rest of the year, you, you had a week to find a new job or, you know, file for unemployment before that check stopped coming in. So especially restaurant workers. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. So, so we should, um, keep in mind, like the, not only the terrible planning around this, but also the quick turnaround and like basically just dropping a bomb on people saying like, you know, you have to find some other income soon and Which, a lot of people um, won't be able to. Is, is also, um, unfortunately to some degree a necessity because like, if you, if you say we're going into lockdown in three weeks, um, people are going to just go out more in the next three weeks. Yeah, exactly. Which really does emphasize the need for, um, I don't know something robust (laughs) government economic intervention um yeah and and also the you know as we mentioned before the um oregon unemployment payments have been delayed um a lot too because their system is not really designed to handle this many people filing for unemployment so you know even if you do successfully apply then who knows how long it'll be until you actually receive a check if you do at all so with that in mind um let's actually go into food insecurity now yeah so uh there's this article here from cbs news um that focuses on this uh you know mississippi food pantry um and you know they reported uh 16.2 percent a rate of food insecurity in their county um and they you know they had seen a uh 40 percent increase in urban areas of food insecurity during the pandemic, mostly among uh, black and brown people, people of color, especially been hit hard. Um, and then at the at the bottom of this, there is a report from the Institute for Policy Research at Northwestern University in Chicago that um, found that food insecurity had doubled overall and tripled among families with children due to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and that was in June. Yeah, I mean, if you're not going to school, um, you're not getting that free lunch either if you were already food insecure. Exactly. And and that um, that's in here that in September, uh, the number of adults who reported that members of their family didn't have enough to eat often rose from 8 million in 2018 to between 26 and 29 million between April and July. And... Um, one of the researchers at the Institute for Policy Research um, basically said that is that, um, you know, schools staying open or closing uh, is a more difficult logistical matter, but feeding people and getting people food and allowing them to, you know, have that security is just, just about, it's money. Yeah. Um, it, and, you know, like funding for SNAP. Yeah, exactly. Um you know that we all saw those those stories toward the beginning of the pandemic of like supply chains um being slowed down and like farmers literally throwing away tons of potatoes into big piles and like mm-hmm. we have the food we just 
we're not distributing it. We're we're not um, giving it to people who need it. Yeah. Um, and that's that's really the thing is that you know food insecurity among the general public um, has risen by two times, um, and you know among black adults it's it's more than three times than white adults. Um, it's just a disaster that like we know how to solve. That's one of the things is that like we don't know how to. Which um, um you know, not to get too high minded, um, but it's sort of that the echoing theme of American politics is that it's a disaster that we know how to solve. Um, which you can say about basically, basically every um, dimension of American life. Yeah. Next episode is about healthcare. Um, so, <laughs> like. It's one of those things where literally if we just gave people money and like this is not just, you know, Bernie bros, it's like actual policy researchers who do this for a living. Their prescription for this is give people money so they can buy food. And we just haven't done that. There's there's no amount of infrastructure that's going to be more efficient than just giving people money. Yeah. and And they mention like you know, the supplemental nutrition assistance program, um, they mention unemployment benefits, but like bottom line, if you just gave everyone a, a set amount of money, like every month, like that, that would basically solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And, well, and um, yeah, it's another, just depressing. Uh, another dimension to this um, problem with food insecurity is um, uh, rent relief, because if you have to decide between um paying your rent or, you know, eating only 75% of the food that you actually need to eat to be nutritionally adequate, um, you're probably going to choose rent. Um, that's just the bottom line. And so um, the fact that people who might not have jobs are being asked to pay um, really high rents um, in Portland at the very least and in basically every other major city um, and not getting any relief from that is also squeezing food insecurity even further. Yeah. And, um, I'll admit I'm not, I don't know the exact situation in Oregon right now. Um, but I know in, uh, many places across the country, it's not so much, uh, rent cancellation as, as a rent freeze yeah. that they're doing so that even if you do have your rent, you know, frozen for the length of the pandemic, eventually you're gonna have to pay that back, which is, yeah, that's still debt. Yeah. I mean, that's just unsustainable. That's yeah. impossible to, to deal with. Um, and when we're putting people in a situation where they have to choose between housing and food, then I don't know. That feels then, like a failed state. Maybe we're not doing a very good job. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so we wanted uh, we wanted to talk about how this specifically impacts um, the PSU community. Um, and I understand that we're going to talk about the. Um, the study that came out in September. Yeah. Um, Is that this September? Yeah, September 23rd this year. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was a study of uh, students and faculty at PSU um, about basically uh, not only food food insecurity, but uh, rent and, you know, housing security and and just basic needs. Um, And it's bleak. uh, yeah, it's really wow. Um, 
So just to start off with the study uh, defined homelessness as lacking fixed adequate nighttime housing, which includes staying with friends or family out of necessity. Um, housing insecurity was defined as issues involving housing livability, such as cost, safety, quality, consistency of housing. Uh, and food insecurity was defined as uncertain and limited access to food because of social and economic conditions. So, so um, the, the key phrase in both of those definitions is uncertainty. Yeah. So basically, if you're asking the question, um, you know, will I have housing or will I have food? That's insecurity. That's de as defined by the study. As, op as opposed to currently experiencing not having a home. Yeah, yeah. So we should um, clarify that current houselessness is different from housing insecurity is different from have experienced houselessness. So yeah. um, among students... So with that said... Uh, yeah, with that said, uh, among students, 44.6% of students experienced housing insecurity in the 12 months prior to completing the survey. 16.1% experienced houselessness in the prior 12 months. And 47% experienced food insecurity in the 30 days prior to completing the survey. Uh, more than 60% of respondents had experienced one or more forms of basic needs insecurity in the past 12 months. That's bad. That's very bad. That's like failed state bad. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> and this survey, um, this survey polled, um, 3,500 students, um, which is 15% of the student body. So this isn't, um, this isn't like a small sample size. Right. This is, um, this is truly comprehensive. This, what you see is what you get as far as this, the student body goes. Yeah. And, um, if you want to talk about some of the, um, the cross tabs of, you know, different, uh, demographic groups? Um, yeah, so um, BIPOC students experienced the highest rates by far of basic needs and security. Um, Native Americans, Native American students rather in particular um, experienced twice the rate of houselessness as their white counterparts and 66.4% um, rate of food insecurity. So two out of three Native American students at PSU aren't sure if they're going to be able to put food on the table. Um, and then more than a fifth of Black, Middle Eastern, North African, multiracial, uh, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander students experienced houselessness in the 12 months. Um, so, so as we said up top, that's not, um, that's not um, a fifth of students who are unsure about housing. That's a fifth of students who were actively houseless in the past year. And um, it's, it's worth noting that um, when we, uh, in, in, a, in a PSU context, when we say students, um, that most likely means people with families. Yeah, I mean, we're not just talking about college students, like single people between like us, 19 and 23. Like we're talking about people with families, people with children, um, you know, older, older students. Um, it's bad. It's real bad. Um, I, I do want to point out to, uh, more than a fifth of black Middle Eastern, North African, multiracial and native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander students experienced houselessness in the 12 months prior to the survey, more than half experienced housing insecurity, 
yeah it, it's it's a really staggering study it is it's terrible um among employees 22.7 percent experienced housing insecurity in the past 12 months 5.6 percent experienced houselessness 16.5 percent experienced food insecurity in the last 30 days and this is like employees people who are being paid by the school who are working so i mean it's it's worth questioning at least a little bit um who's benefiting from um the way the university is structured right now um with with these numbers yeah and you you have to wonder too um you know if your employees are at least partly you know getting paid through um snap or uh, you know other assistance then that's just that much more money you don't have to pay yeah and i'm just thinking like how much um is the university basically being subsidized by public assistance um more than you know than a public university already is yeah and just the the fact that you know more than one in five employees experience housing insecurity five over five percent experienced actual houselessness in the past 12 months these are employees of the university that is really staggering to me black black employees were um twice as likely on basically every figure so i'm a a black um among black employees around 10 percent would have experienced houselessness yeah and around 30 percent would have experienced food insecurity yeah and um Adjunct faculty, who are about 47% of PSU faculty, uh, were twice as likely to experience housing insecurity and three times as likely to experience food insecurity as their full-time counterparts. So, I mean, um, you know, obviously this is sort of cherry-picking data, but if you if you read these numbers literally, that means that um, a Black adjunct faculty member uh, is six times as likely to experience food insecurity as a white um, full faculty member, if I'm reading that right. Yeah, I mean, I. And, and we and know. I, um, I would be interested to see too, like the the breakdown of. Yeah, we how know many, that it's harder you know, for um, black BIPOC people to rise in academia, so those effects do stack. Exactly, and you know, what's the percentage of white full time professors? versus adjunct and who, who are also experiencing housing insecurity yeah i mean <laughs> they're just at they're, a lesser rate but it's still a fucking issue yeah i mean there's just the the um i don't know just the 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 sheer number of people students and employees and and everyone at psu who is just experiencing like basic insecurity of like fundamental needs it's really um, it's bleak there's basically uh one program at psu i mean that's um that's oversimplifying a little bit but there's a um there's a program at psu that's specifically designed to um give students and faculty um access to food and that's um the psu food pantry and um Nick, I believe that you just interviewed Hannah Halsgall yesterday. Uh, yes, I talked to her yesterday for about 10 minutes. And, and she's the food pantry manager. 
yeah, she is the uh, manager, um, and she had some very interesting things to say about the food pantry and food insecurity during the pandemic and in general. And okay, why don't we go ahead and run that? And so I was just wondering, for people who don't already know, uh, what services does the the PSU Food Pantry provide? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I very much appreciate any space and all spaces to talk about the food pantry and food insecurity among um, PSU students. So for services that we offer, we are still operating under COVID. We're trying to get that message out and let folks know um, we were actually designated as a critical service for the college. And so we have moved from the basement of Smith to now operating temporarily out of Fifth Avenue Cinema. Gotta give a shout out to Fifth Avenue for helping arrange that. Um, and we are open Mondays through Fridays and we are actually open 25 hours per week instead of 15 previously. Um, you all, I think, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we're open 12 till 5, and uh, Tuesday, Thursday, um, it's around um, 11 a, 11.30 a.m. to 4 p.m., and basically how it works now is instead of um, what we used to do is have at least six students in at a time come and grab what they want, it is we do 10-minute uh, appointments per uh, student, so you go online, go to our website, make that appointment, um, and then you show up at the time that you said so, and you will be helped out there. Um, it's a way so we could have social distancing, less contact, and we've completely reinvented it. So there's as minimal to no contact with staff and students. Um, additionally, we actually also launched food delivery back in March as a way to get, you know, completely no contact food, non-perishables to students where it may be risky or difficult for them to come onto campus and um, yeah, and we also offer SNAP assistance as well for any students who need some support going through that. I know that was a bit of a long, long ramble, but you know, that's overview of what we're able to provide. Uh, yeah, that's, that's great, thanks. Um, and for, for people who um, maybe haven't used the food pantry before or um, you know, because of COVID, uh, food insecurity might be a more um, pressing issue right now like what would you uh, what would you want those people to know who haven't maybe used the food pantry before and and might be interested now absolutely yeah uh, what I like to tell people is I like to cite a very recent study that was done by um, you know at PSU and it showcased that actually 60 percent of PSU students face basic needs insecurity you know, more like one out of every two students will most likely either it's housing, food, financial. And with such a large uh, figure like that, I really like to showcase to students that food insecurity is very much not an individualistic issue. You are not randomly food insecure. Someone is not randomly food insecure and it is no one's individual fault. It is a symptom of a systemic issue from capitalism, colonialism, and imperialism that have contributed um, and created food insecurity. So 
that's what I like to tell, you know, I, I, I really am trying to encourage that to folks so that they understand they're very much not alone in this. And they did everything right to be fed because food honestly should be accessible to everyone. It should be free to everyone. It is right here from the earth where it grows. Um, and so that's just kind of what I would like to let those people know who might be you know, wanting to use the food pantry for the first time, and maybe this is the first time they've ever needed to use it. There's over half the student population also is in need. And, you know, the pantry exists because we believe you shouldn't have to choose between your textbooks and your dinner. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and going off of that, I was wondering uh, for people who, you know, maybe have uh something to donate if they would like to uh, contribute to the pantry what's the best way to do that like money donations food both anything else both are always welcome we love money we love food you know we welcome either and both um basically you can email pantry at pdx.edu if you are interested in making a monetary donation or if you want to give some you know whatever canned goods you got um we yeah absolutely welcome it um we actually have a page on our website if you go to psufp.com um you can find the donation page on there where we you can make that if you know you don't want to write a physical check but yeah we we welcome all of it and if you're interested in doing a fundraiser maybe for the pantry or doing a food drive um, people have done it for us before. We're currently in the middle of planning some right now with some great organizations that reach out to collaborate and some departments at PSU. So yeah, welcome. We really, we really want to, you know, empower folks. Yeah. And, um, to end off, uh, is there anything that I maybe didn't mention or something else that you would like to bring up? Um, anything else you'd like to say about the food pantry or food insecurity at PSU or, or anything? Yeah, um, I don't think there's actually, I think I've covered it mostly, you know, I really, um, I think during these very difficult times under COVID, under a racial justice uprising for Black liberation and Black power and, and global um, Indigenous sovereignty, um, I think it's very important for people to understand how food insecurity absolutely connects to all of that. And maybe it seems very far away being in Portland and, or being a college student at PSU, it can seem random to think about what's happening around other parts of the world in regards to food insecurity, but it's absolutely linked and connected. It's, it's lack of water from Flint, Michigan to, to Gaza, Palestine, you know, it's, it's, it's everywhere. Um, food insecurity is a symptom and it's a weapon. It's a weapon used by oppressors. And so, I don't know, I just really like to to really push for people to, to find education, to reach out to us for educational resources if they would like to learn more. Because I think while we wanna also be a free resource for students, we also wanna empower students to understand food insecurity more. It can be such a vague subject. We know data and we know statistics and who food insecure, who's maybe not as food insecure. Um, but, you know, there's important narratives also behind it. And so that's what um, I'm trying to create awareness of. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much.
back. Okay, so that was Hannah Alsgall from the PSU Food Pantry. And before we finish, yes, very inspiring. Before we finish, uh, we wanted to end out with some of the uh, last results from the survey. Um, They did a follow-up survey at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Uh, It was only 166 students, so it was much smaller than the first one. Um, I mean, due to COVID, uh, you can imagine finding a larger sample would be hard. Um, With that in mind, um, their findings were that 64.5% of respondents experienced housing insecurity during the pandemic, 20.5% experienced houselessness, and 55.4% experienced food insecurity, and BIPOC students experienced higher rates of all of those insecurities than white students. But like there wasn't, I take it there wasn't a large enough sample size to conclusively say like what rate? Yeah, um, you know, it, it was it was measurable, but again, with only 166 students, it's a little harder to to make, you know, those declarative judgments. Um, but in general, like it, it, the pandemic made things worse. Yeah, which I think is pretty self evident to everyone. Um, yeah, and and from the initial study, um, in addition to BIPOC students and employees, LGBTQ plus students and employees also reported high rates of housing insecurity, homelessness, and food insecurity, as did people with disabilities and medical conditions, um, and transfer students, first generation students, and current or former foster youth also reported higher rates of basic needs insecurity. So that is essentially the PSU insecurity survey. Also, um, tuition's going up. Yeah, that too. <laughs> but I mean, tuition is always going up. Yeah. Um, yeah. So things so, are um, bleak. Yeah. So um, on that note, thank you for listening to the podcast. Um, next episode, uh, like Nick said, is probably going to be about healthcare. Um, it might be about something else or some other, um, earth shattering event happens in the next two weeks. I don't know. I was just rolling with it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, um, we should, we're both, we're both healthcare, um, experts. Yeah. We should, uh, we should talk about the issues that matter, you know, speak to the people. Jerry Seinfeld. On that note, um, (laughs) Thank you for listening. Tune in in the next two weeks for the next episode of Radio Free PDX. Yeah, have a good couple of weeks. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>